Welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm a developer at Smart Logic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile software applications since 2005. From the Smart Logic team today, we have my co-host Eric Ostrich. Say hello, Eric. Hello. And we are working on season two of Smart Software. Season two's theme is Elixir Internals. So we'll be talking today about the inner workings of some popular Elixir libraries. We're joined by a very special guest, Paul Schoenfelder. Say hello, Paul. Hey, guys. So, Paul, just jumping right into it, do you want to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, where you work, how you got started with Elixir? Sure, yeah. As some people probably know, I, I work for Dockyard and have for the last year and a half, I guess, somewhere in there. Before that, it was kind of bouncing around from company to company, doing different things. But for the last five years, I guess, I've been doing Elixir full-time or Erlang, one or the other. But my background originally was in .NET, C-sharp and F-sharp, and some JVM work with primarily Scala. But, you know, I was looking for a language that was getting a little bit, trying to do something new. You know, you get too far down the .NET, JVM rabbit hole, and things start to look very much the same. You know, it's like very capable, but there's a lot of pain points. Things have improved, you know, in recent years, but it got me searching for other languages that were more just fun to work in. So JavaScript, Ruby, I played around with Clojure a little bit. I'm mostly just kind of exploring different languages and paradigms to find something that I felt would be more fun to just write little programs in, whether it was for work or just for myself. And I stumbled across Elixir fairly early on. I think it was like around 0.10 or 0.11. I just started playing around with the language. You know, the idea of hot code reloading being sort of a first-class citizen and, you know, being able to do things at compile time with the full breadth of the language were some capabilities that were just really nice from my perspective. So I got deeper into language after that point, started writing some libraries, and that was what enabled me to kind of leave my old set of jobs, the enterprise world kind of, and go start working for startups doing Erlang Elixir. Cool. So as part of this series, we also kind of want to talk about just general. So do a deep dive in to like Elixir library internals and whatnot, but we also kind of want to talk about open source contributions in general. So what was the first library you started or that you contributed to? And like, how did you decide to do that? So when I first came to language, I actually just started building stuff of my own. I didn't really contribute to other libraries too much. But the very first thing I wrote was uh, like an IRC client library. It's like sort of a good way to test out like the pattern matching stuff and writing a parser and things like that. And so that was called XIRC. Still around, still, you know, semi-maintained. But that was the very first thing that I started working on. And shortly after that was EXRM, which was like the first release management tool that I built. The very first library that I actually contributed to, man, I don't even know if it was a library. I think it was probably just the language proper. I was hanging around in the free node IRC channel a lot, 
and kind of interacting with Jose and, and Eric, a few of the others, Chris, and just, you know, as ideas were kind of developing across the community, you know, like we would identify things that needed to exist. So a lot of it was kind of just discussing the language evolution at that point. And everybody's kind of off doing their own thing with libraries, you know. You had Chris kind of working on the very, very early version of Phoenix, me working on my couple different tools, and then a variety of other people kind of building things out. Timex was also another thing I was working on around that time period. And a lot of those things sort of developed into what has become like bigger things now, you know, like the release management and the calendar API, all the daytime stuff that has made it into Elixir was in large part inspired by, you know, conversations and the development of Timex and of Calendar, the library developed by Lyle Tarnskov. And then, you know, obviously Phoenix has blown up into being this huge thing for the community. And a lot of that's thank, thanks to Chris and Jose and the team there that kind of tested a bunch of different ideas very early on before they really landed on what Phoenix became today. And so I guess it's hard for me to really say where you know, my first initial contributions really lie, but I kind of feel like it was very much a blend of everybody kind of contributing ideas back and forth. Now things are a little bit different where things have evolved more, so things are more stable and there's a little bit more of that working in a silo for a while and then maybe going and contributing to an upstream library to like get fixes in that you need, that kind of thing. But it felt a lot more scatterbrained and random early on. So we want to talk a little bit about distillery today and i'm going to start with the sort of obvious naive question which is what is distillery yeah so i mean distillery is kind of the second iteration of exrm which is the original release tool that i built for elixir which itself was built on top of relics which is the erlang version of the same tool distillery was sort of like my take at rebuilding it from scratch with a lot of the lessons I had learned and also an attempt to build it in a more maintainable way because EXRM had sort of grown very haphazardly into a point where it was around the shell scripts anyways, it was very difficult to maintain. You know, every time it touched a feature in there, it had impacts elsewhere and it became very difficult to manage that. So Distillery was in part motivated by desire to like deprecate things that I knew were bad ideas and try and come at it from a different angle that was more extensible, more modular, and also tied better into the language itself. The end goal of that was to get releases into Elixir Core, whether it was part of Mix itself or like sort of a separate tool like Hexes, but the idea was to get something into Core and Distiller was going to be kind of my draft for what that would look like. So the architecture was mimicked after, you know, how the Mix library is laid out code-wise and sort of evolved from there. So can you maybe explain it like I'm five? What is a release? Sure. Yeah, so OTP releases are the packaging and distribution method for deploying Erlang Elixir applications or Beam applications more specifically. So what that really means is, you know, compiling your app, generating all the pen general config files and some shell scripts to kind of handle bootstrapping the system. And then you untar that somewhere, wherever you're going to deploy it, and you can run the shell script to start up your app. It gives you some options for starting it in different ways, whether it's like as a service in the background or running in the foreground or running as like an interactive shell. It gives you some options there. 
So just so I'm clear, it sounds like you're compiling the code, you're zipping it up in a tar file, and that is what the release actually is with all the config and everything. Yeah, the terminology like release refers to both the packaging up of the thing, but also some of the metadata files that are part of that. Mm-hmm. So a release is composed of a set of OTP applications. Okay. And the release sort of also defines in what order those things are loaded and started. And then also is, contains the metadata needed to do like upgrades from one version of the system to a new version. And so when you're doing an upgrade from one version to another, it's not just one OTP application to another, it's all of them in some well-defined order. Mm-hmm. And so what do I do with this release? Like how do I deploy it? So once you've generated the artifact, the tarball, you can just copy that somewhere. As long as you know your source system and your target system are the same architecture and share the same version of system libraries, like OpenSSL, for example, then you can pretty much drop that tarball on any server, extract it, and run the release there. And all that involves is like literally untarring it and then just running a single command to invoke that shell script that will run the release. Okay. And, and just starts that in the same way that like mix run would start it or mix run and dash dash no halt. You make it sound really easy. Yeah, it is very easy. It's the difficulty with releases is mostly around setting up like your build infrastructure, right? So that a lot of that is automated and taken care of for you. And these days you can do that kind of automation with Docker or whatever CI system you're using. So if, if I wanted to learn more detail about you know how this, these releases are generated, either in distillery or in Elixir Core? Like, where would I go to learn more? The distillery documentation, I think, provides a lot of really good introductory information. There's, as of Elixir 1.9, there will be a release tool in Elixir itself and also some documentation there that would probably be worth looking at. But the distillery docs have been around much longer and have a lot more fleshed out information. A lot of what's in the distillery docs is portable to the new releases. You know, you might have to make some adjustments for the things that are different, but you know, the concepts are the same. And in the Erlang manual, there's more detailed information about, you know, what is a release composed of, what files are there, what's the file system layout of the release, things like that. It goes into much deeper detail about hot upgrades and, and how you design and build those, all that is linked to you from the distillery doc. So if you go to the distillery documentation, you can pretty much get taken to all of that stuff. That would be my number one recommendation. All right. So you mentioned distillery is a rewrite of XRM. So like when you started the new version, how did you think about like decomposing a better solution to XRM and like what were the first steps? So I knew that one of the things I wanted to do was break away from using relics under the covers as a library, in part because I had a lot of tooling support from Mix itself that gave me a lot of things that I that relics was sort of recalculating. So I could avoid a lot of that overhead by just using the metadata that Mix generated. And since I knew that Eventually, the idea was to move this into Elixir Core. Having any sort of third-party dependencies was not going to work out. But, you know, I still kind of shared some of the architectural similarities with Relics 
I didn't try and deviate too far in that sense, mostly because there was no real need to change that. Like it worked well. It was oriented around exactly the kinds of things that I wanted to bring from EXRM and Relics into distillery. Another major part of it was the shell scripts and how they were laid out. So there's really two aspects to distillery. There's the Elixir code, and then there's all the shell script code. And I think there's probably more shell than there is Elixir, but a lot of that shell code, the complexity is around dealing with configuration and, you know, having like the ability to run it in a read-only file system, you know, being able to dynamically load configuration, things like that. So the initial version of Distillery was mostly about getting that first version of the new architecture, a more modular shell scripting setup fleshed out. And then once that foundation was there, really start looking at what kind of features we could bring to Distillery that were not possible with EXRM. So the major thing there, of course, was how to deal with configuration. Historically, that was the major pain point with releases, mostly because there was no easy way to share config files that you were using with just Mix with the release version. So if you're just deploying like all the build tools and your raw source code to a server and then just using Mix to compile and run your app, things mostly just work transparently. But the way that the releases work is that config file is a static file. It has no ability to invoke like functions or whatever in there. And so the old version of all the release tooling essentially did like kind of a search and replace of all the, like a templated variable name, pulls that out of the environment and then replaces the content of where that was in the config file with the actual value. So there's a whole bunch of complexity about how to deal with that. So that was one thing I knew that I wanted to get rid of because what would inevitably happen when people were switching to using releases, they'd have a config file that was like pulling stuff out of the environment or something. And then they'd build a release and run it and their config would be broken because it had baked in values from their build environments that pulling them at runtime. So there was a lot of time spent figuring out how we could solve this in a way that made sense, that felt intuitive, that tied into the way Mix works and the way that people tend to think about configuration. Me and Jose were talking back and forth during that time period relatively frequently to try and figure out like, okay, well, in this edge case, how do we deal with, you know, the problem of like this configuration being sort of ambiguous, whether it's compile time or runtime thing. And all that work ultimately made it into distillery as the config provider setup that's there now that showed up in 2.0. And that same config provider mechanism is essentially replicated now in Elixir 1.9 and the release tooling that's going to show up, the very first version of that. So that was a major thing that, you know, ultimately was only around for maybe a year or, or so. Yeah, C2.0 made it out basically around ElixirConf last year. So it hasn't been that long, and we already have Elixir, the release tooling in Elixir now. But Distillery has been around for like two and a half or three years at this point. So, so it just goes to show that like how much time really goes into sort of R&D on, on breaking sort of these major obstacles that have come up over time. We were doing something that just 
wasn't necessary in Erlang up until now because the way they dealt with configuration just was based on the old way of doing it. They didn't have that same sort of blended config file that Mix has. Paul, you've mentioned a couple times now about releases getting pulled into Elixir core for 1.9. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is that based on the work that you've done in distillery? Is it a new project? Like, were you involved? Can yeah, I mean, initially I was going to be the one implementing it, but I had other things that I had to work on, so I was not able to actually do the implementation myself. I had, like started to do some of it, but the bit major contribution, I guess, for me was really the config provider stuff. But Jose was the one that basically did the initial implementation that's now on 1.9, and he based a lot of that off of how Distillery did things with the goal of keeping it minimal, trying to avoid a lot of the complexity that's in distillery because of the feature set it supports. And the nice thing is that he was able to do that in a way that is simpler than distillery. It's less feature rich, but in a way that doesn't really sacrifice the major points that most people need. So that's dealing with configuration and just like packaging up the release and having enough of the shell scripts there to run it. He even was able to add like a plugin type architecture that's slightly different than how it works in distillery, but still enables the same level of control. And a lot of that stuff was, you know, in part based on lessons I had learned in distillery, but just mostly figuring out what people's use cases are. You know, one of the benefits of me having worked on EXRM distillery for so long was I heard about all the different ways people were using these tools. So I think, for the most part, beyond having distillery as just kind of a reference point, a lot of Jose's questions for me were mostly around like how are people using these features, you know, or whether or not something is important, or you know whether or not it would break a lot of people's flows, that kind of thing, so that he could then figure out, you know, whether he wanted to deal with that in a particular way, or whether the design needed to factor in some of those uses. But ultimately, I think he was kind of going his own direction with a lot of it. So what does this mean for distillery? Do you recommend that people use it? Can you talk about sort of the future a little bit? Oh, you're saying distillery? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend that if you can make use of the release tooling in core, do so. Because ultimately, that's going to be where the most development ever is going to be spent, right? Now that it's going to be part of the core language, it'll just have more eyes on it. For my part, you know, maintaining distillery has been something I've done because I both use it and, you know, built it. So I felt obligated to maintain it. But it's, you know, historically, it's not been something that people really ever want to contribute to. I do get issues filed periodically, and there are some pull requests with fixes, but definitely a lot more bug reports than PRs. And that's because people just aren't particularly interested in working on that stuff. And for my part, you know, I've always found system administration and ops work interesting. So it didn't bother me too much, but, you know, I've got a lot of projects on my plate now that want to be able to put my attention on. And so naturally, distillery sort of falls behind on maintenance in that regard. For my part, I'm planning on making distillery a tool that can build on top of the core Elixir tooling. But 
I'm not entirely certain that distillery needs to exist on top of that. It will be possible for other people to build extensions to the core tooling if they wish. I'm not sure what distillery really can provide, you know, as a tool that builds on top of the core tooling. You know what I mean? It has some individual features that might be nice to add, but those could be broken out into little components that could then be plugins for the core tools rather than one big umbrella or monolithic library that you add to your app. So I do think that to some degree, Disturly will fade away, but I will continue to maintain it until the core tooling is considered stable. So it'd probably be the next major release of Elixir, which will be, I guess, around six months from now. That would be when I'd plan to sunset distillery if I have no intent of, you know, building something new with it on top of the core tooling. Like if there's not a clear use case where it needs to exist, then it would go through its deprecation cycle starting then, where I'd be pointing people towards the core tools, but maintaining distillery for those that need the feature set that it has that the core tools don't. And the main place where that exists right now is for people making use of the hot upgrade functionality. Distillery provides some tools around that that the core tools don't and probably won't for the foreseeable future. So that's the only real area where Distillery still has some value for people that are, are using that. But that's not to say that Distillery is needed for that. It just adds some things that make it easier. Let's put it that way. So that's a bit of a meandering way of saying that it's not super clear where Distillery will go after this. Suffice to say that I don't think people need to be afraid that it's going to be abandoned. That's not going to be the case. But people should start looking as soon as 1.9 is actually released. People should look at migrating to that tooling if they can. And six months from now, we'll see where things are at. Yeah, I think all of our current uses of distillery is pretty much to just generate the release. We look at a static like known config EXS file somewhere on the system and then like just start in the foreground. So I think I think we'll be able to use like mainline releases. Definitely um, should be able to. So. Cool. Yeah, basically if you're not using hot upgrades, I can't think of any particular reason why you would need to use distillery. It has some extra bits and bobs, but they're all things that you could re-implement yourself very easily on top of the core tools. So I think that, you know, for the bulk of the community, the core tooling should suffice. You know, if, if that was a really important thing, I'm sure Jose would have tried to build it into the initial version of this stuff. But the reality is that, you know, a lot of people are just not using hot upgrades, don't have the need for it. And those that are, I think, are a mix of people that probably shouldn't be using hot upgrades but are using them and people that have a legitimate use case where they're necessary. And so that really kind of narrows down the group of people that, that need the support of the additional tools. So distillery will fill that gap for the near future. But I'm hoping to either reshape distillery into something that's maybe like an extension of the core tools specifically dedicated around that, leave that up to the community. You know, myself, I haven't been using hot upgrades in a long time. It was one of the things that attracted me to language in the first place because I thought it was super cool. But it's just not a thing that's practical for your average deployment. So, you know, in practice it starts to fall behind in terms of support of the overall tool set. Yeah, I was also brought in partially for the hot code upgrades. And then as you start learning more about it, everyone's like got big, huge warnings, like make sure you know you need this. Like this is yeah. 
easy, but also really hard to do well. So I imagine if the language was strongly typed with a static type system, then it would be a different situation. The main problem is that automatically deriving the upgrade code is basically an MP-complete problem. Like you have to be able to generate an arbitrary program to automatically transform from like the old version to the new version. And a lot of the code is ultimately going to have to be handwritten because you're the only one that knows what that stuff means. And that happens all too often. You know, just doing a refactor where things get renamed spaced can kind of wreak havoc because now, you know, the at least distilleries tooling around this sees that you have a whole set of beam files that have changed, basically a bunch that were removed or a bunch that were added. And it doesn't know that they were renamed. Like maybe some of that could be derived from source control, but I didn't go down the rabbit hole building something that complex. And so you ultimately have to generate an upgrade that thinks that like the whole world has changed. And that's not really what you want from a hot upgrade. But it's something that people might do thinking that it's no big deal. They're all just figured out somehow magically. The reality is that when you're running hot upgrades, you have to be very careful to make the minimal set of changes necessary to get this system from one version to another. So everything has become very incremental, very well thought out. You know, you need to have like a testing process for making sure that the upgrades and the downgrades work. So if you try and roll something out, the system can be rolled back if that change was not good. I've seen people tie like database migrations to the hot upgrades. And so if the hot upgrade fails, their migrations have already run. Now they're in a like catch-22 where they can't go forward and they can't roll back because they didn't think about it, breaking it down into these very incremental steps. So I think there's maybe even some value in, in pushing people away from that capability, especially considering how operation has shifted in recent years. There's very few places where hot upgrades at the application level even make sense. You know, it makes a lot more sense to have you know, a cluster and then spin up a new version in a separate cluster and then start slowly you know, canary-style rolling traffic onto the new version of the application in a way that allows you to kind of control the, the roll-in and roll-out process depending on how things go. And from my perspective, that always works better. Even for systems that don't support hot upgrades, you know, you can still achieve zero downtime upgrades with that kind of setup. And that's the major reason why people are even using hot upgrades to begin with. You know, Ericsson designed them specifically for telephony systems where you're on a phone call and that phone call needs to continue working while the system, the switch was actually being upgraded. That's a use case where hot upgrades are absolutely essential. Like you can't work around that somehow. Maybe you could do some kind of network level tricks, but for the most part, that's a sweet spot for hot upgrades. But very few people are working at that level. Anyways. <laughs> no, this has been a fascinating conversation. Eric, do you have any more questions you want to ask before we wrap this up? I think we're good. Well, yeah, so we're, we're at the end of our time here, and it's really a fascinating subject. Paul, you're, you're one of the, like... I don't know, legends in our community might be <laughs> too grandiose of a term. But yeah, I, 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 I almost don't think so, you know, but it is really an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. I want to give you some time for any final plugs or asks for the audience, anything, you know, social media accounts, anything that you, you know, want to shamelessly self-promote now is your opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of 
working on some in the dark projects at the moment. So I don't really have anything that, that I want to point people to right at the moment. But I will say that, you know, I have a lot of projects that I built at one point that I don't necessarily use myself anymore because maybe the projects I've been working on don't call for it or, you know, I just don't have the time to maintain anymore. And it, I don't necessarily want to see those things, you know, just kind of fall into disrepair if they're being used by the community, you know. So I just want to say that, you know, if you're using a project of mine, you feel like it's falling behind on maintenance or whatever, and you're interested in contributing, I am looking for, you know, people to add as committers, maintainers to most of my projects. And if you're interested at all in that, definitely reach out. I've worked with a few people that, you know, have had expressed some interest and have worked on some of my projects like Timex, EXRC. But for the most part, I'm pretty reliant on people pinging me, you know, PRs to add fixes, you know, even things like fixing like compilation warnings and things like that. Because I have such a long list of things to, to walk through every time a new version of the language comes out that it can take me some time before I get around to fixing things. So... And that's Bitwalker on GitHub. Yeah. Okay, Paul Schoenfelder, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, this has been an episode of Smart Software with Smart Logic talking about Elixir internals. Join us next time. And in the meantime, alchemists, keep on distilling. <laughs>